Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Crux, where we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Today's guest that Mike and I are going to be interviewing is Sarah Fetterman. She's an assistant professor of negotiation and conflict management at the University of Baltimore and has written extensively and studied extensively on issues of corporate government historical transgressions and how companies, governments, and others can address them in a modern setting. It's a fascinating discussion and one that may sound like it's a history lesson, but it has so much application, plenty of smart and practical advice from Sarah on how to address these issues. So let's go to the interview. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux. I'm here with Mike Fernandez. Hi, Mike. Good morning. We're talking with Dr. Sarah Fetterman today about how companies can address past transgressions such as slavery or perceived or real support for repressive or criminal governments. To me, this is a really fascinating subject um, and, and something that certainly has application for our listeners in companies with long histories. Yeah. But even if, if not, it certainly has application now, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the complex decisions multinationals face on how to respond. Sarah has practical and smart advice for companies that might be facing these risks to their reputation and obviously to their overall success, business success. I, I discovered Sarah's work through a terrific article how Companies Can Address Their Historical Transgressions, she wrote recently for the Harvard Business Review. She is also the author of the highly praised 2021 book, The Last Train to Auschwitz, The French National Railways, and The Journey to Accountability, which of course focuses on this subject and the role of the French National Railway in World War II Holocaust deportations. Kirk has called it a rare book that ably combines historical edification with a moving narrative. So having said all that, what does Sarah know about business? Well, she spent a decade as a senior advertising executive working with big brands. And on the import of this subject to business and society, Sarah wrote in HBR, quote, the legal and reputational risk to companies from their long past activities are growing as large portions of society push for what they see as an overdue reckoning. Schools are being renamed, mascots are being discarded, and statues of historical figures that only a few years ago barely drew a glance are being toppled. So Sarah, welcome to The Crux. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk 
about your advice for companies in your book, but I want to start by asking you to describe how you came to study the subject of companies and transgressions in their past. It surprised me, actually. I was I was working in Manhattan, doing working with different advertising agencies and, and large media sales houses, and our company bought a business in France. I was the only one who spoke French, had a passport, and didn't have kids. So off I went. They, <laughs> I was banished to Paris, which was a wonderful thing to have happen to anyone. Never say no to Paris. And moving about Europe, I really I saw the impact of World War, the World Wars, both of them, in a way I'd never really understood. Mm-hmm. Of course, we'd studied them growing up. I'd read books, seen movies, but standing in the trenches of Verdun and visiting the death camps because we had a client in Poland. So I was able to visit. He wanted to take me to some of the death camps. Wow. And it started to build. And I thought, we can't do this again. You know, seeing the amount of people killed in Stalin's purges, right. which actually I discovered in Germany, I had no idea. 25 million more were killed. And it was slowly building inside me of like, I want to do, I want to help this not happen again. And it was seeing my own name in Paris on a memorial wall, Holocaust memorial wall. One day I was passing by and I just wanted to see if there were any Fettermans. I saw my name. It took my breath away. And I recalled a question asked to me by my uh, old professor at the University of Pennsylvania I had stayed in touch with. And he said, hey, when you get to Paris, find out if those French train drivers kept their jobs after the war. And I had completely forgotten that question. He was asking about the train drivers who drove the trains towards the death camps, the deportation trains. And by the time that happened, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start answering that question. And little by little, here I am. I have a new career. I got a (laughs) book about these trains. Yeah. Wow. And and were the Fettermans, just curious, the Fettermans on that wall, were they part of your family or just shared the name? No, no, there were many, many, many Fettermans murdered in, in World War II, in my family, but they were murdered in Poland. And it took the five years of researching the book. At the end, I actually found out this Sarah Fetterman, who she was, and uh, found a picture of her wow. um, and her descendants. Yeah. Well, the, maybe the best way, I want to come back to the book, but I want to sort of continue uh, on this overall topic. And, and I want to grab another quote from HBR. And it, uh, you wrote, businesses face scrutiny over the origins of wealth and how they may have exploited people to enable their current profitability. Social media makes it easy for activists to publicize criticism, organize boycotts, and take other actions. So I want to ask you, Sarah, how widespread an issue is this, the need to understand and respond to historical transgressions, let's say among Fortune 500 companies? Yeah, well, there are a number of Fortune 500 companies that have some difficult paths. You know, any company older than 50 years old probably has something that didn't go quite right at one point. So, mm-hmm. but you know, you have JP Morgan, Raymond James, Dr. Pepper Kerrig, Bear. They're just some of them that have histories, but they're all, everyone on that list is going to be called into question for their environmental record, their supply chain, you know, regarding slavery. So, some, it might not be slavery or genocide or supporting a regime, but there'll be something that for which they could, could be judged right, in, in, in their histories, and how they will be judged by future generations. And in your experience and the research that you've done, are most companies that working on this, in other words, who might have some risk from their past actions, are they aware of it and are they working on it? 
That's a great question. More and more, they're seeing other companies that have these histories be exposed by lawsuits and deciding that maybe that's not the best way to discover one's history. Because often these employees, they they don't know. You know, they're excited to work at this heritage brand. They're proud to work there. They've been working for this moment there. And so they don't come in thinking that they're working at a company that has this buried history. But as they start to read about other ones, they're like, wait, we're we're also 150 years old. What did we do? So those increasingly they're starting to do their own research. Ideally, they do it before they're sued or someone else makes visible that chapter. Exactly. Exactly. It's interesting. You sort of stumbled on a whole nother area that that I don't think I was going to go down, but I'm going to ask you just one question and I'll get back on, on track here. And, and that is, isn't history at the end of the day based on who writes it and who reads it as opposed to, you know, all the facts? It's like when, when we were all in, you know, grammar school and high school, we looked at history as a set of, you know, immutable facts. And you go to college and then you find various events where people don't know the history. And even in our midst today, we have, you know, the head of the Russian government trying to create a sense of false history in order to make his claim and and, and do kind of his evil deed in the Ukraine. It's just fascinating to me that in human consciousness and in human history, there's probably, you know, Whoever's in charge gets to sort of write the history, if you will, and that's what's kind of handed on generation to generation. Absolutely. And that's why with the French National Railway book, I started out with a chapter of them as a victim of the German occupation because they didn't start World War II. Then how they could be storied as a hero in the resistance, which is what they were remembered for for 50 years with help from the government. That was a constructed singular story. And then how they could be storied as a perpetrator in the Holocaust. And then how you braid these ideas of a 500,000 person company. Like, which is it? Is it victim? Yeah. Perpetrator? Yeah. Well, and then, the, and then digging deeper on that story, it's interesting, too, because it's not just a company. It's a state-owned railway system. And the the fascination of or the intrigue of all of that and how that unfolded, I'd love for you to share with us the story, how France responded many years later, the implications even for those of us in the U.S. I just think it's a fascinating story. Yeah, it it really grabbed me to the point where I just couldn't stop. I snuck out of work and went to the archives because it was becoming the most (laughs) interesting thing in my life. So. Just to be clear, the during World War II, the Germans came in, France signed an armistice with Germany, and the railways were requisitioned. It was a five, about 400 to 500,000 person company. Wow. At that time, it had just nationalized, so it was perfect for the Germans. And they needed a functioning railway to do their, to keep France going and to do use those trains around Europe for deportations and armaments and feeding their own soldiers and so on. So what went on kind of after the war? And then there were some trains used for the deportation. 76,000 were used for the people were deported. About 3,500 came back. They were deported to Auschwitz. So those trains were used for that. After the war, there was a singular story that the, the government and the SNCF and the people were kind of complicit in constructing because the country needed a site 
to rebuild its national pride. Um, it isn't just humiliating because that isn't even quite the word to be to be occupied by the Germans during that time for the French mm -hmm. and the railway. A number of railway workers working against the executives at the time did sabotage the railway during D-Day, and they were very important to preventing the German armaments from being able to arrive and fight off the Allies. But that became a site of national pride. There was a movie, the Fran SNCF won a Medal of Honor for the resistance, and that lasted till the fall of the Berlin Wall, when everything changed. The West no longer needed Germany or Switzerland to protect it from the USSR. And then archives opened and survivors started suing the SNCF, among all the others, the Swiss banks, fresh banks, all those that you've seen were in the 90s. And the SNCF got these lawsuits it was, and to, to the shock of some of the executives, because they also thought that they were a heroic railway. They didn't realize. So they hired a historian, which is what I recommend mm -hmm. people do, an independent historian to go through the archives to study the history. They then had a colloquium about that, trying to braid these different stories. They made the book open to the public, the, the findings of the historian. They opened the archives. You know, as you say, not every company has archives that they can open, but they did. <laughs> they started giving money to Holocaust commemoration. They did everything but pay survivors. And the French courts, you have to sue individually. So the French courts eventually closed to all World War II cases. Mm -hmm. But some people believe that if you don't pay, it doesn't count. Right. Small group, yeah. but there's a group. And so the, the, with, the, with the French courts closed, it traveled to the United States. And that class action lawsuit was launched out of the United States, knowing that you can't sue a French National Railroad but to get press. And then because the SNCF, the French National Railway, through Keolis, was bidding for contracts in Maryland, Virginia, New York, Florida, California, activists could pressure their legislators to draft legislation to keep the trains out. So they worked, they had leverage, they had kind of a boycott. Interesting. And this all led, and you know, you can let me know how, how much detail you want, but it really blew up in yeah, Baltimore over the DC purple line. So basically also they've won the MB, uh, MBTA contract. They have that contract and it was just renewed. So they have all of the Massachusetts rail, but it blew, wow. yeah, it blew up in DC over this purple line that's being built. And the State Department got involved and said, hey, Maryland, you can't make France pay reparations. And the Maryland legislators were like, what do we do? Do we piss off the Holocaust survivors? Do we lose a $900 million project? <laughs> and they put the bill in committee. They just uh -huh. like ran away from it. They had a hearing, but they just didn't want to touch it. And it floated up all the way to the State Department where Stuart Eisenstadt negotiated with the French human rights ambassador for a $60 million settlement to cover people that were not covered by other agreements. The SNCF is not mentioned in the settlement per se, but if you get the money, you have to promise never to sue the SNCF, <laughs> never to lobby against them again. Uh, so it was to put the sure, sure. to put it to rest. Uh, and so it sort of was at rest. And, and did, did, to, sorry, sorry. So to answer the question that so intrigued you, did those drivers keep their jobs after the war? They all kept their jobs. There was very little, so there were per, a period of purges after World War II of collaborators, but very little happened at the railway. There were a couple of, of people who were who were held accountable, but all the railway workers kept their jobs. I mean, if you remember at Nuremberg, there the major industrialists of Bayer, of IG Farben, Krupp Tyson, there were about yep. Yep. twelve of them that were held accountable. They don't, they, none of them spent more than eight years in jail, and they went on to run post-war Europe. I mean, we have people in jail for longer over a marijuana charge than <laughs> than mm -hmm. those who provided the mm -hmm. gas for the gas chambers. So, 
you know, accountability wasn't a big, big piece. And then the question of whether they had choice as drivers and who exactly. should be held accountable, the executives. The, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, and to your point, U.S. law is a lot different than a lot of other places. So it's fascinating to me where, you know, companies in particularly seemingly enjoy legal immunity in the U.S. for their past actions. And, and yet, you know, activists and clearly descendants persist in some of these lawsuits. What's prompting both the companies to respond in the way they're responding, as well as what keeps the activists and the descendants going? Yeah, great question. So there is mostly legal impunity for the moment. There's no international criminal court. U.S. local courts aren't often, these cases are not are not tried in court. They're often used to reach settlements, to pressure companies to settlements. So I don't I don't know if any Holocaust actually transnational litigation case was settled in court, <laughs> mm -hmm. was decided by a judge. They expose what happened. So for example, this very compelling storyline of Holocaust survivors sue for French trains that deported them and were paid per head per kilometer, right? So it has this like really gruesome title to pressure the SNCF to settle. And it really does. Like these headlines work. Lawsuits get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And law does eventually follow public will. So while for the moment, courts usually ha have uh, subject matter jurisdiction issues, statutes of limitations, they cite these things. But, you know, remember that segregation was defended by the Supreme Court too. <laughs> and eventually things change. You can justify it. So there exactly. is a hope that like maybe at some point there'll be a tipping point and that it'll, it'll follow public will. But then Mike, another question about kind of companies, how they're responding. And this is really, I think Gary's world and your world is too, is I think there, there's a knee jerk PR response that doesn't quite work for these larger historical mm -hmm. transgressions. It's not a spin. It's not just kind of a quick apology. It's deeper work for which they are not trained. Like, why would they be trained for this? They're trained to look forward. They're trained to deal with the issues of mm -hmm. the now. And what I hope to contribute is to have another way to think about it so that they're not making it worse for everybody by doing a knee-jerk response that'll trigger more upset and more violation for the survivors and make it worse for the companies because then you're all going to be caught in that Chinese finger trap. Right. Yeah. Reparations, in, particularly in the last presidential election, were a big issue. And I look at kind of the first article or the first story in that HBR piece with CSX and this lawsuit that was filed in 2002 on behalf of all living descendants of enslaved people in the U.S. The suit focused on CSX's use of enslaved people to construct its railway. How did CSX respond? Yeah, so... They responded to the lawsuit itself, declaring that it was wholly without merit. And the spokesperson at the time, Kathleen Burns, she actually chastised the plaintiffs for trying to hold today's employees and shareholders accountable for the, the dirty deeds of the past, which is an understandable and common response. Not always the most useful, <laughs> but it's almost a defensive move. Once a lawsuit is launched, the, of course, you're being treated as an enemy. So the enemy is going to protect itself. And there are other kinds of conversations that can be had. All the railways in the U.S. were built by slavery. Mm -hmm. Amtrak mm -hmm. is just lucky because it was created, what, in 1972? <laughs> you know, the Baltimore, Ohio Railway? You know, who built that? So those railways are just lucky to be gone. 
And CSX just happens to still exist. To still be there. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, so Sarah, I just want to pull a little bit on what you said about the defensive crouch that companies go into. Is that usually the articulation of it when it's, it's in our past, we can't be held accountable for something that happened decades or even a century or more ago? Is that what you see? Yeah. And it's really understandable. We hear that with all kinds of things. I mean, there's a lot of people struggling and suffering. And then they say, well, why does this group, why do their needs today right matter? I don't have healthcare either. You know, I'm poor too. (laughs) And why did these people get this? Mm -hmm. And that's, it's a very, it's a very painful conversation. And it does help to understand that the problems of the present are really connected to the past. Nothing has helped me see that more related to slavery than living in Baltimore, which allegedly had its heyday, right. you know, in the 18, early 1900s and now is gone to wreck. But I actually think it's part of what happened in the 18 and early 1900s that contributed to where we are today. Today. Absolutely. It's, it's so important to understand the past. And, you know, I to your point, executives, business executives are taught to think forward, right? I mean, stocks trade forward. It's always about tomorrow. And, and anything that looks like it's an anchor from the past gets discarded pretty quickly. And as a, you, by the way, as a university professor, I'm always looking for like lists of things I can tell students, right? Like, oh, here's four things you should do when a crisis happens. And I, I love your article. One of the reasons is is that you have four pieces of advice for companies on how they should handle these claims if they're ever involved in them or confronted with them. And the first is to accept responsibility. It sounds like they don't <laughs> in the first part of that question, or, or maybe they, some do. And, and again, why should they for actions that happened so long ago? So yeah, the first is the first step should actually should be to, to do the research and understand the company's history and make that a company-wide conversation so that it's okay. inclusive for everyone. Like we're looking at this together. We're not, we didn't do it. We weren't there, but like, we're going to be part of it. And I think a lot of young people today coming into the business world will be really interested in being able to have this conversation at work. So I think it'll actually increase employee engagement, which is very exciting. And especially mm-hmm. as you know, the top 50 companies in the US just gave $50 billion in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And you know why we need that money for diversity, equity, inclusion? <laughs> because of the legacies of slavery. So you're telling me that a person's exactly. going to a black person's going to want to work at this company when this company is hiding its slave history. Yeah. You know, acknowledgement is part of the restoring of the dignity. Mm-hmm. Donna Hicks does a lot of work around dignity violations and the importance of yep. acknowledging yeah. the dignity violation. So I say de- de- diversity equity inclusion work requires that institutional gaze that and being transparent kind of all the way back. So that's that's one for our larger view is that when we're dealing with past infractions and we have those conversations through an ethical frame, it makes us look differently at the ethical decisions we're making today. If we're looking through an ethical frame, if you're looking Mm -hmm. at slavery in your history, it's going to be a lot harder to perpetuate it in your supply chain right now. (laughs) So it actually helps interrupt the cycle. Looking back helps. Yeah. And while companies aren't used to looking back, they are used to looking forward because they know how money compounds. (laughs) So there is, they do can think over a generation or two, right? So they can look back. 
as well. And they're seeing their problem actually that compounded over time. And, and, and so, Sarah, how would you suggest your second point is about understanding your past. You mentioned previously that, you know, hiring independent historians, that kind of thing. Is that the best way to do it? And, and what do you do? I worked for a company, GE, where we didn't have a big archive, even though, you know, invented by, you know, founded by Edison and all that. There wasn't a lot of paper history of the company around other than corporate filings. Yeah, that's really so few of these country companies have archives because unlike public institutions, they're not required to keep them. So only if you have a real heritage brand that has been like Hudson's Bay Company has kept records, Coca-Cola, right, has been watching its history. Yep. So they yeah. they know their history of uh, getting it. So and they're actually doing that work to various degrees how much they're how much they're cleaning their history on the way out the pipe but mm-hmm. is is another question, but in terms of that, in terms of like World War II, there would be some documents in Germany, right? There would be some Germans, maybe some German scholars who can go take a look at archives there. I think you can start to ha- talk about the different trends and what was the likely, you know, the likely history of it. Yeah. But I think every company over 50 to 100 years wants to have a corporate history, like wants to be able to tell the story yeah. of their of their company. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Although what's interesting to me, too, you made an, an earlier point that I think is so important, is this thought of reaching out to historians, because maybe those documents, maybe those artifacts are outside the context of the company today. And one company that Gary and I know that seemingly has gone a bit through this journey is Brown Foreman with Jack Daniels. And they have tried to tell the story in in, in recent years about this master distiller who was black, Nathan Nearest Green, and that he was a mentor of Jack Daniels in in the creation of what we think of as this American whiskey. So, So it's you know, it's fascinating to me to see how that can all come together. Yeah. And not to produce a history that's final because there'll always be new archives that'll be found. New generations will judge it differently with a different lens. I don't mean to make it that it's chiseled in stone. It will be revisited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This episode and other episodes of The Crux are made possible by Boston University's College of Communication, or COM as it's known. COM is BU's home for the study of advertising, emerging media, film and television, journalism, media sciences, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash COM. So one of your your coachings out of all of this is, or your piece of advice out of all of this is to apologize. And and, and Gary and I, as, as, as public relations professionals, oftentimes have counseled companies on kind of the art of the apology. <laughs> uh, you use JAB Holdings, a German firm that has controlling interest in firms such as Krispy Kreme and Calvin Klein as an example of this. It supported the Nazis and used forced labor during World War II. What has it done right since and as far as apologizing publicly for these actions? 
Yeah, I I think they're in the in the early stages. I haven't been able to see what they've done since 2019, but it was Peter Harf, who's a managing partner of Jab Holdings, who helped initiate some research and encourage some research on the family history. And the family was open to it. The Ryman family, which old, owns it, has a very strong Nazi connection. And the New York Times did a big expose on it, which was really important. And then Harf helped commission a historian to actually write a history about this family company. And he said they were, when they learned some of what is being discovered, they were shocked and horrified. So he hasn't, they haven't yet made a public statement. As far as I know, they have pledged $5 million to Holocaust survivors and 5 million euros. So miss, I think it was in euros for both. Yeah. 5 million euros for former forced laborers. So they've offered some money. They're in the process of working on this history. So I hope there'll be a book soon. The apologies are very difficult, as you both know, and, and I'm sure you could even tell me, is that they're the when companies are being sued, they're very careful to say it, not in a way that suggests that they're liable. So they're trying to express mm-hmm. regret without, uh, and that it was a terrible time that this happened, and we're so sad that this happened, and we mourn for the victims, and we may want to support them, but it's very clearly trying not to link responsibility. Jacques Chirac gave a most beautiful apology for France's role during World War II to to Jewish victims and others. And it was so moving. But again, he was the government, so he's not expecting to be sued. And it it worked. Mm -hmm. It was in the 90s, the mid 90s. And it landed very well in France. In the U.S. Well, I was going to say, sir, it's hard to interrupt. You know, Mike and I would have to wrestle the general counsel (laughs) to the ground. Right. You know, and put his arm behind his back or her arm behind her back. To, to on this point, right? It, which you make so well that it's it's so finely attenuated these apologies that sometimes they don't really have meaning. That's right. And the French one over that French National Railway became really contested because they expressed regret. And then there was a question: Oh, is it language in French? If you say "I'm sorry," that's too trivial. And so it just got all into the weeds. And there is something to remember, though, that saying something will matter to some of the descendants and the victims and those who were harmed, and it will not satisfy everyone. Mm-hmm. So no matter what companies do, if you get backlash, no, not if, when you get backlash, it doesn't mean you did it, did it wrong. Right. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have done it. It's just that the harm is so deep and people have a lot going on in their lives that they will just not, everybody's going to be satisfied and come and hug you for, for doing the work. So to some degree, it's going to be very rewarding, and there will be moments when it feels thankless, and you're wondering why you have to do this at all, because of what happened was so horrible. Even if you're not, you weren't responsible. It's just mm-hmm. that you're crashing into some of that harm. Exactly. So, so, apology was one of your pieces of advice. Another piece of advice is respond meaningfully. What does it mean to have a meaningful response? Great. And I, I wasn't being vague to be to avoid the question, but I want to make sure that each organization is working specifically with the communities that were harmed and work in conjunction with them on what that would mean for them. Because otherwise you end up creating things that maybe look good on paper. You just throw money at it, which ends up looking like paying an invoice. Like, Oh, still was a pretty good deal. Hugo boss did really well during world war two. You know, like it was kind of worth it on the balance sheet. Right. So you want to get away from kind of monetizing it and just thinking of it as something you can that you can pay off and then they should shut up now because you've paid them. That sometimes happens. So meaningful response requires engaging with the communities that have been affected. Now, it's tricky because you can't engage with everybody and not everybody will be happy with what you decide. 
but I can talk a little bit about like, can I, do you mind if I talk a little bit about how, what that might mean in, mm-hmm. in, in regards yes. to slavery? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So slavery is the one that's on everybody's mind. So you write a book about the Holocaust and we're like, oh boy, right? There's never been a national apology in the US by any president. There was a House of, member of uh, House of Representatives who gave an apology, but we've never had a national apology. We've never had a national program. But companies are getting kind of pulled in and universities and seminaries are all becoming part of this conversation. I teach at the University of Baltimore where we have a lot of first-generation students, largely African-American. But here are the things that would be meaningful to them. Just they're buried in school loans and the the jobs that they are that they move into or tracked into or however you want to say it are the lower paying government jobs they will never be able to they have the bigger loans they don't get quite those corporate jobs right or maybe because they don't think they can get them mm-hmm. so i think three generations of free education could be something that could be really meaningful but definitely wiping away school loans even retirement accounts like taking the young people in baltimore throwing $10,000 in each one of them, give give them a retirement account so that they can think that there'll be money after 30. They don't think they're going to live beyond 30. So they live their lives like they're not going to live beyond 30. And that affects everything from, you know, parent, you know, impregnating, (laughs) uh, getting pregnant, using guns, drugs, all of those decisions are because they don't think longer. But what about a retirement account? That'll grow. Mm -hmm. Throw that money in there. Opioid addiction, there's great programs in Baltimore that that like Safe Streets and Turnaround mm-hmm. Tuesday that could be supported. That isn't just about giving people cash. I've asked my students often, like, what do they think of reparations, right? It's a, they're, they're the ones affected. And they don't all agree. They don't all think you should throw a check into the community. They're like, and my brother will just buy sneakers, you know, or, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to go gamble. You know, they, some do, but they want the dignity returned. And they want the help. And we know very clearly that a lot of the problems that they experience are not personal, um, mm-hmm. but they, they come through the, 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 long, the long chain of slavery, Jim Crow, apartheid, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to take this actually through a more personal lens. I'm a double graduate of Georgetown University. It, it, it at least has attempted to do a meaningful response. It actually had sold in, in 1838, I think something like 270 plus enslaved people. And uh, this was uncovered by researchers. And on the back end, of, and, and maybe in the midst of that research, the university sort of took it to heart. And the university built kind of these Georgetown slavery archives. All of us who were alums got letters from the president of the university with kind of a public apology and some steps that they were going to take in terms of trying to track the lineage of each of these slaves with the idea that their generational offspring would be able to go to school at Georgetown University going forward. But clearly, that's not enough for everyone. I'm just curious if you've looked at this particular story and and how it's evolved and any lessons. Yeah, Georgetown is a is a great great example because the students were very involved in this conversation and they actually voted to all increase their tuition by about twenty four dollars. I think that was about the amount. You're right. Yeah, to twenty four twenty seven something like that to contribute to this community of that's largely in Louisiana now of descendants of these slaves. And, you know, the university 
found them. So genealogy is another way that people can help. That's a meaningful response is that, you know, Germans kept good records. So Jews, we can find out what happened to our family, you know, with our families, but there's the being cut off at the root, you know, people being brought here, not knowing beyond like a, a DNA test, but wanting to do these archivals. So that was important work that Georgetown did. There was tension around how that money should be. Oh, one of the tensions was the university offered preferential admissions to some of these descendants, but a $250,000 education without giving any tuition remission is another form of shackles. I'm telling you, like watching my students carry this debt, I'm not so sure that's such a gift. It's like the gift of Georgetown is just so much. You get to be here, but you know, these, some of these descendants from, from these communities sometimes take care of elders in their communities. They have a lot of financial responsibilities. So this gift of social mobility is actually cuts back and it pulls them away from home. They have less money to care for their families. And it's not always a gift. So I think that was one thing that Georgetown, you know, could have given some tuition reduction there, not just preferential admission. Sure. Now they're shifting to the although, Jesuit. Although, although in, in, in fairness, that the applicants would still be eligible for whatever scholarships, whatever whatever uh, they tuition. can be offered. And I say that as a first generation student in my family to go to college and saying that as somebody who did get both loans as well as scholarship from Georgetown coming from modest means. Yeah, and it would have been great to have that within the offering. Or at least mention yeah. that we would, you know, we have need blind admission or something like like that to suggest, right. because I got right. very concerned. Also, it can be a very isolating experience, too. But still, it was mm -hmm. it was a start. And I think we the thing is, we want this to be a conversation and not just the shaming and blaming when it isn't quite land. Right mm -hmm. now, the Jesuits through the Georgetown body that was created are trying to raise one hundred million dollars to support that community. And there's a lot of arguing about that. Some of the descendants say, well, you know, we didn't, why are you raising this money versus giving it to us? So you're not actually transferring wealth. And there's, there's arguments about how this goes, but I do want to say it is just messy. Like it will be messy. Having the conversation is going to be messy. Repression is not messy, right? If you want to live like North Korea and have no protests, you can do that. <laughs> but if you want freedom and you want inclusion, inclusion, mm -hmm. it requires mm -hmm. including people in uncomfortable conversations. So Georgetown's kind of struggling through that right now from what I'm, from what I'm understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, and the students are still quite involved, which is great. And they're an example of being willing to have the conversation. Exactly. Well, you know, I went to Siena College, which is a Franciscan college. And, you know, we have a rivalry with the Jesuits, of course, informally, I guess I would say, but I was, I was very actually seriously disturbed recently. I've been reading some books about uh, Native Americans and indigenous people in the United States and, and this territory, I guess. And the Franciscans were quite just terrible to Native Americans, particularly in the southeastern, southwestern part of the country. And actually it was the Jesuits who came in and were much less punitive I know that Pope John Paul II uh, issued an apology more broadly, not specific to this, but I, I couldn't, I haven't been able to find anything from the Franciscans, both from an apology standpoint or maybe it exists, I just haven't gotten there, 
or, or a meaningful response. So you think of the Franciscans as this loving, sort of caring human order uh, of Catholicism. And, and in fact, in, in the Southwest, they were quite uh, hard and, and ruthless. If you were to interview them, go back in time, they would probably feel a little bit like those who did the residential schools in Canada, that they were killing the savage to save the child. Right, that they were do they that it was a, it's that paternalistic yeah, right. attitude of we are helping them, mm-hmm. you know they're struggling, they, they there's alcoholism, they don't take care of their kids, so that becomes a, a way to justify that care. So it isn't mm-hmm. quite like the Nazi at the gas chamber, you know the way it's rationalized in their in their heads and storied for yes. them. Exactly, that narrative is so important. Right. On, on what we know, to Mike's point, what we know and don't know about our history. And so that's where I, I want to end it on the last question. You said something earlier that was so smart about knowing, uh, for example, about these issues related to slavery and w- what role slaves played in building an enterprise and organization will help you with DEI today, help you, you know, not ignore the issues that persist. I, I think so smart. So we're recording this in the middle of the first major European war since World War II. And so companies are struggling some mightily with how they respond to that. Do you think sort of understanding your past might help these companies today deal with the Ukraine? I suspect that, I mean, it's World War II and dealing with slavery and colonialism that's making them pull out because they know they're going to be his, they're going to be storied a particular way. It's the discourse in these other areas. They're all connected. It's I want to be on the right side of history because yeah. last time we were on the wrong side. <laughs> right? right. So I think there is an awareness yeah. of how one's yeah. ethicals role, one's ethical role. You, you know, that brings up one other thought, and and and, and that is, you know, going back some years has been this creation of something that people refer to as the process of reconciliation. And it goes to not a specific, but more to the general nature of what happened to a group of usually indigenous people. I first came upon it in Australia more than a decade ago as as companies and the Australian government were wrestling with how do they change the dynamic the it, and create some economic inclusion for aborigines and 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 now we're seeing it even in north america as canada and the us both the governments as well as companies uh, are talking about you know cultural understanding economic reconciliation and i think part of this effort to reach out to indigenous communities is is also being spurred on by the fact of you've got this united nations declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples what do you make of this process and and the promise it may or may not hold oh it's so messy right i as as you're talking about it maybe naive or or not helpful to deny the fact that some people are going to feel that they're losing power as inclusion moves forward, right? Because somebody may get hired to a job that somebody else would have been hired for. Mm-hmm. Even if white, someone isn't a white supremacist in the sense of, you know, having the, the symbol or whatever, that there can be some comfort in feeling that you're the dominant race and or ethnicity and a dominant group in a culture. 
And if there's inclusion and all of a sudden you're not kind of getting that automatic boost by just being how you were born, it's uncomfortable. It's a power shift. And people are, you know, I mean, King was right when he said, like, people don't give up that power willingly. Mm -hmm. So I think the struggle before us is the Mandela level struggle. How the heck do you do this in a way that you don't just perpetuate a cycle of revenge? He was a master at this. You know, he he under he, he wanted the white people in South Africa not to be so terrified. And he wanted the, the black folks who had been under the apartheid to not just incite revenge all the time. So he was trying to sell both groups on a different solution. And he's he's a model for for us to, to look at how we mm-hmm. can how we can do that, because otherwise it just becomes. Uh, revenge. And there will be an element. There will be an element of it. Uh, people are going to be afraid of losing jobs. Some will take advantage of compensation programs. Of course they will. Right. Like these, you don't want to deny all of these things are going to happen. Some people might make up stories. Human nature. So they're included. Yeah. And I you know whenever there's people involved, you're going to have you're going to have a power struggle. You're going to have lying. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we're, we're trying to be a better species. So this is one opportunity to, to do that. Well, I, I like ending on the point that we're trying to be a better species. That's uh, that's true. I, I'm fascinated. I know Mike is as well, too. He and I have talked about this topic previously. So, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the crux. It's really, and I highly recommend your book and the HBR article. The book, by the way, is The Last Train to Auschwitz, The French National Railways and the Journey to accountability. Sarah, again, thanks for being on The Crux. Great. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.